This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. You know them. You love them. This show is supported by Talenti. When Talenti makes gelato and sorbetto, they tend to get a little overzealous. Did they need to use so many raspberries in their Roman raspberry sorbetto that the machine broke? Did they need to try 25 different chai teas to find the perfect spice blend for their vanilla chai gelato? Did they have to invent giant mint steepers to make their Mediterranean mint super minty? Does their obsessiveness make Talenti Gelato and Sorbetto the greatest? You be the judge. But yes, it does make them the greatest because they're also the judge. Talenti, the delicious is in the details. Trust me in saying this stuff is incredible. Go to anywhere that they sell frozen goods and you will find it and you will love it. Now, here's the show. Hello, and welcome to another episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I'm your host, Ray Harkins. We're hanging out, talking music, most specifically independent music, because, you know, that stuff doesn't get as much coverage as, uh, you know, all the mainstream stuff, the stuff that everybody likes, you know? Um, like, I, I was watching a little bit of the NBA Awards last night, and it, it's, I don't know, it's just always wild to see people who have transcended music and are, you know, just a pop culture icon and it's like watching Drake host the uh, the NBA awards it was like, oh, yeah, like that's, uh, you know, that's wild. Clearly, the people that are in our scene are not completely destined for that, even though all, you know, some some do make it through. But anyways, I digress. That's not the point. The point is to focus on our guest. And the guest is Al Brown. He plays in a band called Dangers. He's the lead vocalist. He's also a, been a fixture in the. Orange County slash L.A. County, whatever, <laughs> Southern California, hardcore and punk scene. Um, always a very opinionated dude, um, not in like a dickish way, just, uh, you know, he has his opinions. And uh, we get really into that on this show because um, you know, him and I have never had a discussion about this stuff. Um, there's a little, you know, lore that travels around him in regards to there was a time where a lot of violence was being uh, threatened on him. Uh, in and around the whole sort of crew mentality and all that sort of stuff. So we really get into it, and uh, I loved how honest he was and how frank and open, because, you know, that stuff is is really uh, in the past, and that's not something that uh, fortunately plagues him currently. But that was a, uh, yeah, it was just a great discussion, and I, I like that, because really I haven't gone anywhere near there in the five-plus years of the show as far as the uh, crew mentality and all that sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah, it was a, it was a great discussion. And uh, what else do I got to tell you? Well, I have to tell you, happy summer, right? I hope you're traveling, you know, seeing fun things, doing fun stuff, because that, you know, that's what summer's all about. And uh, happy 4th of July, because by the time that you listen to the next episode, that will be in, in our rear view mirror. And uh, so, yeah, hopefully you don't hurt yourself by holding a firework longer than you should be, because I definitely have done that. I think everybody has done that. I've fortunately not lost any fingers or hands in any weird accidents, but I think there's always that level of obsession when it comes to uh, exploding things, you know. I think that, um, especially from a, you know, young boy perspective of like, oh man, I'm 12 years old. I have to find the biggest half stick of dynamite. I got to find an M1000. I can't wait to blow those things up, right? I got to I gotta have a friend that uh, visits Mexico and gets me a bunch of illegal fireworks. <laughs> oh man, good times, right? Or those little poppers, right? Those poppers are annoying. Let's be honest. Like even when I was throwing them at a earlier age at people's feet or their shins, um, yeah, they were annoying. <laughs> so hopefully you're not annoying anybody this 4th of July and you're just having, uh, you know, some good clean fun, right? 
Um, let's see what else do I got to tell you. Well, I've got to tell you that a bonus episode is going to be dropping in the next couple weeks. I did one with my very, very good friend Joey Cahill from 6131 Records. We did it on uh, early 2000s, like old school hardcore. You know, there is a, a real boom around that era for bands that, uh, you know, sounded like traditional hardcore, but they, you know, they're maybe putting their own little twist on it in some capacity. And uh, I think a lot of bands were kind of forgotten about and don't last as long as far as, uh, you know, on the tips of people's tongues. So we did a deep dive into that, which was super fun. So I'll be doing that probably the next two weeks or so because you you listeners really enjoyed the uh, the skate rock episode that I did with uh, Shane from Silverstein and Lead Singer Syndrome podcast. So, yeah, that's uh, that's what's up. And then speaking of podcasts, I have to tell you about my good friend, Tom Mullen, does the Washed Up Emo podcast. Clearly, it's part of the uh, Jabberjaw Media Network. So if you like podcasts, because I get I get questions occasionally from people emailing in and being like, hey, what shows do you listen to? Um, that's a bad question to ask me because I could just punish you for like hours in regards to the podcast that I listen to. And, uh, you know, not all of it has to do with music because clearly I'm uh, well, not clearly I'm a one trick pony, I was going to say. But, yeah, I, I have diverging interests. But um you need if you like music and you like podcasts, you definitely need to dive into all of the Jabberjaw shows. And uh, specifically, I'm highlighting Tom's show, Washed Up Emo, does a great, great service of uh, you know focusing on people that have uh, you know created that scene or have been involved with it for quite some time, playing bands around it. It's a it's a very informative discussion because uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of times where certain people um, you know get short shrift and they don't uh, get recognized for the cool hard work that they've put into certain things so uh yeah tom's show is great and you can listen to it on any podcast catcher possible and then what else do i got to tell you well i'll tell you more at the end of the interview but uh yeah here's my great discussion with al brown just a a good dude vocalist of dangers just doing the damn thing and he's a teacher too he's i i just i love it because this is the epitome of a person who's grown up completely influenced by punk and hardcore and are taking these principles out in the real world and uh, yeah making changes i love it so here's al and i'll talk to you the show. you're one of those people too where uh like i can't I don't think you and I were ever like formally introduced like, hey, Ray, here's Al and Al, here's Ray. We've just existed in the same rooms forever. Yeah, it's it's funny because I talk about that uh, with uh, Jeremy a little bit, too, until we like were formally introduced from Touche or like even Justin uh, in our band. Like I've known like because I used to go to I mean, you did, too. We would all go to shows at Showcase or uh, Ojai. We'd be all over the place and you just see the same faces. But I always talk about this. It's different being in California than in New York, uh, where I lived for a while too, which is like there you can be from like different parts of the city, but because of public transportation, you like kind of hang out and stuff, I think, or like after shows, there's stuff to do around you where we're at. It's kind of like cool. You might see someone's face at a show and then like you go to Del Taco maybe, and you'll see a little groom like, oh, cool. And then you go on your way and you live 80 miles apart from each other. So it's not like you're going to be friends with anybody. You know what I mean? And it wasn't until... 
uh, I don't know, until much older in life that I started actually like, well, maybe I'll talk to that guy and I have a car now. I can maybe drive to hang out. So, yeah, yeah but you've, you've been always like, oh, yeah, I know, Ray. Like, but <laughs> I, know, I, don't know, I don't know no Ray. So, totally, yeah. totally. It's funny. I've actually, I've never thought about it in those terms that you just laid out where it's like, yes, it does make sense where, you know, sometimes there's that whole youthful notion of like, Oh, like, you know, I, I don't know really what to say to that person or like go up to them and talk to them or like, oh, you know, they may look mad. So I don't want to like interrupt them or, you know, all those weird things that go through your head. Yeah. But it definitely is a geographical thing here in Southern California where, you know, you have no idea where people like actually live because we're traveling all over the place for shows. Well, yeah. And, and I think two things on that, too, because I also think socially speaking, in New York, you're in public all the time, surrounded by people. In California, we are in our cars, you know? And even as a young person, like, you know, we would go to shows and it would be my high school friends and I had big five of us that would always go to shows. So I don't need to talk to anyone else. I'm there with my five friends from high school and we all found the music, so cool. And in New York, it's kind of like, I don't know, you might be the one or two outcast kid and then, like, you know, I'm going to go to the show at CBGB's and then that's where you feel more at home. And you're used to being in public. So it's it's sort of like, I don't know, it, it's a psychological thing that I definitely notice as well. You say hello to people more often when you're in New York. I do at least. Or, or you know, you'll wave or you, you can comment to strangers a little bit more. Here it's sort of like, cool, we both like this music, but I don't know anything about you. See you later. I'm getting <laughs> in my pod and I'm going to close the windows and I'm not going to have to talk to anybody. Yeah. And it really is how it is. So yeah, it's, it's a lot to ask of 16-year-old kids as well, I think, to like connect even if like you see someone which is crazy because that's what the music's also all about you know what i mean so <laughs> no totally but then yeah it's like through usually proximity is when you become close to people where it's just like oh yeah like you know either like you said either go to high school or like they live close to you so that, those are the people who you naturally gravitate towards and then others it's like like you said it's that that sort of passing acquaintance that you have yeah but then at the same time see what happens at, just with the nature of the, the music and how stupid and crazy it is it's like most of the like my high school friends do not go to shows at all anymore even though we're all still close and like this is part of their past whereas i'm still playing in a band so what ends up happening is like the the either the i either i tend to think of us either as the the more enlightened or the idiots who stick around with this crap right and you're like well we're all the 18 people who have stuck through it and now we're still here so now i get to know you you know what i mean it's kind of a, a battle of attrition to a certain extent and and you then you're like friendly i suppose right <laughs> yeah you're both on the same playing field where it's just like oh yeah we're sitting here in our mid-30s and i guess this is like this, yep. is, our, this is our lot in life <laughs> yep this is it everyone else wised up but uh it's good to see you're still here cool yep. hi how's it going <laughs> exactly but the, i i i recollect i mean my first real memory of you being like oh like that that's al and you know i've seen you at shows and everything was you know obviously when you were putting on sync with cali um, and I think it was, uh, what years did you do it to and from? Uh, Singwood Cali was, let's see, 2001, 2002. So 2002 to 2005. Okay. 2002 to 3, to 4, and 2005, yep. Okay, so I think it was, uh, I want to say it was 2003 or 2004. I can't remember. I think it was 2000, was it 2003, the first year that Modern Life played? Yeah, still down, right down by the beach, right? Yeah, exactly. Yep, yep. Yep, yep. Um, <laughs> That was they played their first one two thousand three yeah yeah so I, I remember going to that and you know frankly I just was so um, I was so heartened and impressed by the fact that um, this thing this thing could exist because you know music festivals don't happen especially in a, of a hardcore variety 
you know, prior to, you know, Sound and Fury and everything that existed with that, it, it was impossible to pull off because, I mean, for a myriad of reasons, but I just remember being impressed, like, hey, this is cool that, you know, you pulled this together and it was a, a, a positive vibe. And I just always remember being like, wow, that was uh, that was cool. Do you- well, yeah, I, I think what happened was, um, so I was in Miracle Mile before that. And what happened was we had uh, I had been living on the East Coast. I was going to school uh, at Princeton um, in New Jersey, and so I had been going to shows over there. And we had gone to a few shows uh, in Wilkes-Barre um, where they put on posse numbers. And like I just remember being like, man, I want to go. I, I remember being in high school and being like, seeing all like 10-yard fight and um, bands from here. You know, Strife was playing it and, uh, I don't know, In My Eyes. And I was like, oh, man, I need to go to posse numbers. So we, I don't remember how it happened, but Miracle Mile figured out how to get invited to a pre-show, which was like, I just really wanted to go to this, to the show when we went. And when we went in 2001 or 2002, I was just like, dude, this is so cool. Like, why don't we have, like, we should be able to do this too. It doesn't look like that hard naive, naively sort of. Um, and I, and I realized there was literally nothing like that on the West coast. So I was like, well, um, let me see if I can figure out how to pay for it. And I got a, I got a grant through school for five grand to put on something that was totally non-related to school and uh, it had to be research or, research or an event that was extracurricular and I had to like give back to the community. Uh, and I won the grant from school and I was like, all right. And so my whole goal was just to perpetuate that five grand and to put that on like the rental and all the equipment that we needed and then to hope that there's enough tickets to pay all the bands. <laughs> um, and it worked, I guess. You know, And the other thing that I wanted to do was to say like, uh, I know I'm from the South Bay. I'm from Redondo, Manhattan Beach, and like punk in on the West Coast started there to me. You know, it was uh, Black Flag went to my high school, Circle Jerks went to my high school long before I was there. But I was like, as much as this place doesn't seem like the cool punk place, like this is where this shit started. So I wanted people to be able to come down and then see. Like you can still go to the beach and have a like. This is what California is too. So right, um, it was. Looking back, I mean, I was 19 when I did that, you know, and I was like super stressed. And my our, our bassist Tim, he's one of my best friends still. Uh, he was, you know, we he was helping me do it. And I, uh, in the end, what I really came away thinking was, like, you know, if band it took bands to have the mentality that I had, which is, look, I can't guarantee you any money. You're gonna have to come and hope that like the the notoriety that you can garner is going to bring enough but i will try to get you x amount of dollars and, and that's what i would tell everyone but i was like you got to come like and believe in this thing as much as i, I do or else it's not going to work and i always got to pay i you know i paid all the bands out i didn't make any money off the whole thing and uh it, it was cool it like self-perpetuated every year and i was really really excited by it yeah no for sure i mean it's 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 impressive from that that perspective to just you know i mean you know, the, the, the years that, of my life that I did Sound and Fury, like, you know, it, I felt like it took off like a good year and a half of my life in general just because of how yeah. stressful it was. I'm sure it was the same way with you where, um, you know, did you feel like, could you even appreciate it as you were like existing in it and putting it on? I think because I was also doing undergrad stuff on the other side of the country every year that I put it on. That's what people don't really understand about the whole thing was like, 
and that's how I got bands to come from the East Coast as well, because I could meet them personally. But what was really hard was <laughs> I couldn't go to the venue necessarily, or I couldn't have everything. I would come home for summers, obviously, but I like had to do everything like from afar, and the internet was not what it is today, and so it took so much time to just call and call and then like write this email and write that email. But I didn't, when I was doing it, I basically looked at it as like, like I didn't really like school very, I mean, I liked school, but I did not like where I was living very much. So it was basically my, it was work, but I treated it as a hobby to a certain extent. You know what I mean? I treated it as like, okay, now you finished your essays. Now you finished whatever work you were having to do for school this is the fun thing that you get to do. Um, and that's how it was for the, for the first three years. And it took a lot of work, a lot of effort. Tim helped me a bunch, but then it kind of got to be a little frustrating when like the venue that we normally used, uh, what happened for the fourth one, what happened was the venue we normally used had a shooting at a quinceanera about a month before we were supposed to have it. And I was still on the East coast and they called me saying, sorry, we're not doing any live events. And that's when everything got fucked up. And I had to call all the bands and be like, hey, I'm not in California yet. I'm going to find another venue, but I can't tell you where it is yet. Just stay tuned. <laughs> and that's, that's and I, yeah, and I understand from the band's point of view, what happened was like, okay, that's probably not happening. We're going to go to this other thing. Um, and I got burnt out on it when it got a little like political because I know certain people didn't really appreciate me or know me very well or like had the wrong view of me. And so, you know, when Todd decided to, and, and Riley were going to put on sound and free to start, I was kind of like, if they would have told me that in the beginning of summer, I would have said, great. Cause I don't have a venue. You guys can go and do that. But no one told me. And I ended up losing, uh, four grand on the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So that's when I was like, fuck that. It's not worth losing money as a 21 year old 22 year old kid and working my ass off that people don't even understand how much work it takes and then that's when it became like i recognized how much work that it was and i just got really resentful about it um but looking back on it now like you said anytime anybody does any sort of festival then like it's it's i'm just amazed that they happen that they occur you know, <laughs> <laughs> totally. You what, what, once you get even if it's just like a little taste of behind the scenes, you uh, you really are just like, oh yeah, this should be respected, praised, lauded, like yep. protected. Like it's just one hundred percent. It's crazy. Um, so you, you mentioned born and raised in in Manhattan Beach and Redondo area. What was your family structure like growing up? Like mom and dad in the house. Do you have brothers and sisters? Um, kind of crazy, um, non traditional. Uh, <laughs> so I grew up. My mom had two kids from her first marriage, um, who were, my sister's 11 years older than me and my brother's 12 years older than me. And then she had me with my dad. And I think the dynamic, thinking back to it now, how crazy it must've been because my dad is black and the rest of the family's white and my, well, not white, but my mom is Spanish and Portuguese by blood, but for all intents and purposes was white. And then her two kids were half Polish by blood, so they were super white. <laughs> and uh, in comes my dad. They met at IBM, and it was sort of like all of my mom's family was like, you can't marry this person. What are you doing? They were, like, going to disown her. And this is 82, right, 81, 82, when they were starting to get married. And um, 
then I come along and I kind of unite the family, I think, a little bit. I don't recognize this now. I mean, I don't recognize this then, but I recognize it now. But, um, like, my grandparents on my mother's side came from the Philippines, even though they were, they were Spanish-Portuguese, and they were refugees from World War Two, and ended up in L.A. after all the fighting and stuff happened. So they were kind of racist in and of themselves. And <laughs> um, My grandmother was like wanted nothing to do with my dad and stuff and so it was a tough marriage i think for them to have and then i come along and then my dad uh and mom split up my mom my dad cheated on my mom and so i had that whole dynamic so i was half time with my mom half the time with my dad and living in like this really idyllic place i grew up in redondo until i was about nine and then my mom through her first marriage uh got um, she saved up a whole bunch of money and had a house in Manhattan Beach that she built herself. And um, I guess it's kind of like a silver spoon with an asterisk is kind of how I felt like I grew up because everything was sort of in between. Because I had, you know, I was back and forth between my mom and dad, which was like dealing with that was, uh, you know, whatever. You're, you're a kid, you try to figure out how to make everyone happy and divorce, etc. I was kind of an only child. Because my sister, by the time I was seven, she left for college. And my brother left when I was, like, five or six because he couldn't get along with my dad. Uh, so I was kind of an only child, but I also kind of had brothers and sisters. And then I was also, like, I knew I was black, but I was also white. And I always felt, like, in between no matter where I was. Um, I didn't feel like I, like, really ascribed to any one thing. Um, I didn't feel alone. Or I didn't feel empty. I just felt very much like I was unique, I think, all the time. So um, it was a really loving and supporting family, but it was definitely like, you know, at one point there was five people living under one roof with no one shared the same last name. Right. And it, it, that was just my normal. And so when I had, when I would see like the majority of the other suburban like families that I would grow up with, where there was mom and dad in the house all the time, uh, I didn't ever feel different or envious. I just felt like I don't know what that is like. You know, I didn't feel like that was bad. I just felt like, well, I I don't totally understand what it would be like to have my dad at home all the time or to like have you know a, the nuclear family. So um, yeah, yeah. No, that, that I mean, I, I really like how you phrase that in regards to you were just kind of you know you were living in a very uh, multicultural and uh, you know sometimes volatile environment. But, you know, and because of that, you kind of felt like you had to, uh, you know, blend into any circumstance yeah. that you were kind of thrown into. Yeah. And I think the other thing, too, is uh, when I look at who I became close friends with, um, I became close friends with two Turkish guys, uh, an Egyptian guy, a half Swedish guy, and then one normal white dude. And that was kind of like my closest friends growing up in elementary school all the way through high school. And we all we all had different family experiences, I think. Um, but, you know, one of us, one of them lost their mom when we were 11. Another one had the nuclear family the whole way through. Another one had the nuclear family, but their parents hated each other. And so we all kind of gravitated towards the music, I think, out of a similar milieu, I always say, like a similar questioning and and it wasn't that I didn't fit in with my family necessarily it's just that like looking around and seeing like blue-eyed blonde-haired or surfer kids or whatever I saw like I just I don't know I, I 
I, I guess the music found me or I found the music. It just felt, it felt like it was an inevitable sort of kind of, uh, one solved the other to a certain extent, you know, like music really was a place that I got to ex- escape to when, when everything's were too frustrating. Sure. Sure. And did you, uh, what kind of kid did you find yourself being as you were, you know, in this environment? Like, were you, you know, were you shy? Did you find yourself being outspoken? Where did you kind of, you know, sit as you were developing your identity? Uh, I think I was talking about this, uh, this morning, um, with my friend Rob, I think two things. One, uh, I grew to be highly empathetic. I think when you see adults go through trauma, um, and you're very young, I remember being five years old and watching my mom cry, uh, uh, you know, try to hide it for me, but me knowing like how depressed and upset she was, um, it, and then it actually happened to my, my mom had a third man cheat on her and leave her when I was in high school. So, um, watching that sort of adult pain, uh, made me really attune myself to, okay, how is she feeling? How is my dad feeling? Cause I had to also deal with that. And it made me look, I don't know how to say this. It made, it made me try to understand the role that I was playing in each situation. So it was made me into a lot, a, a, a chameleon. So when the situation called for me needing to be kind of fun and like, you know, outspoken or like joyful, I would try that. And when it would call for like with my dad, like it was much more authoritarian and like, okay, it's my job to be quiet and to clean and <laughs> to make sure that like, I don't upset him. And I could be like Jekyll and Hyde to a certain extent. But I think the other thing that I always had from a young age, I think was the sense that there was no right or wrong. There was always like, I really extrapolate this from, from two things. One from both my parents realizing like, okay, like marriage or love or whatever, like that doesn't mean anything. Like it, it is a thing, but it doesn't necessarily you know, not everyone is just grows up in a happy family. Um, it made me really curious. Um, and on top of that, like my mom and dad both encouraged me to like be thoughtful and create and, and curious. And I went to a Lutheran school when I was until second grade and we had chapel and Bible study a bunch. And I thought it was awesome because we got to sing songs. And I think I recognize more than the other people though in Bible class, I would always ask questions and be like, Oh, how do we know this? Or like, cool, where is this? You know? And (laughs) I remember I got detention once for asking about Goliath because I had gone to see the um, dinosaur bones with my dad. And so I was asking where Goliath's bones were with my teacher. And she was like, we have faith in the parables of the Bible, you know? And, um, I didn't know what that meant. And I kept asking, well, where are they? Where are they? Until I got detention. And I went home and I told my mom, I was like, I don't want to do God anymore. Or like, I don't want to do religion class anymore. And she wanted me to go to Catholic school when I, we transferred it to the, to the, uh, the district. And I said, no, I'm going to public school. So those two things from when I was really young, I think really what happened was, uh, feeling unique, not alone, but unique. And then also realizing that like, you know, adults were adults. You know how you have that moment, and for most people, it happens when you're much older. When you realize, like, well, my parents are people too. Like, I recognized that when I was like four or five years old, and uh, it didn't bother me. It just made me realize, like, okay, I need, I can be mature too. If you ask any of my my family, like, I've just been like pretty serious since I was a little kid. Right. So, yeah, you, you have- I think I think it comes from that. <laughs> Hi. 
I'm Mike Mowry, president of Outer Loop Management. My team and I have been helping our musicians release their albums and EPs to get the biggest first week sales possible. And our strategies work. We consistently get first week debuts on the Billboard charts, leading to greater opportunities for my clients. Great tours, great media coverage, and great industry attention. For the first time ever, I'm going to show you how I do it. Go to OuterLoopCoaching.com to learn more and register now for Release It Right, my online webinar on July 22nd, or Unleash It Right on July 22nd as well as July 29th. Put in the code 100WordsPod5, all caps and all one word, and I will give you $5 off the price of either webinar and I will give another $5 to this podcast. So you'll be supporting this show while supporting your own career. Again, go to OuterLoopCoaching.com and use the code 100WordsPod5. That's the number 100 followed by WordsPod5. This will get you $5 off either Release It Right on July 22nd or Unleash It Right on July 22nd and 29th. Peace. Sure. No, that makes sense. I mean, just my my out, outward perspective of or perception of you is definitely like you, you're not uh, hard, but at the same time, it's like you know you're not that goofy dude that I would see at shows and just like oh yeah, there's there's like you know all the goof, yeah. all the all the goofball like no one's ever said that before. No, yeah, uh, <laughs> and not to my detriment or benefit, it depends on what time you know. But uh, definitely. Uh, empathy and, and curiosity, I think, are, are what my, my growing up were about. Yeah, no, that's cool. Um, and kind of on that same tip, like you've always struck me as a very uh, you know thoughtful dude in regards to um, you know I mean because you're going because you actually go to school and you actually you know <laughs> went away to college like these things um, you know aren't always inherently tied into you know, independent music and punk and hardcore and everything. Cause you know, usually the idea is they're like, Oh, I'm touring and I, I screw off my obligations because I have to tour or whatever. Um, yeah. <laughs> did, so did you always kind of care about school and, and, um, you know, matriculate uh, with positive grades or was that something that you kind of had to grow into? Um, I think it's less that I cared about school than I, like I said, was like just really curious on the one hand. Um, and on the other hand, I think this comes a lot from my, my dad. I'm, I'm extremely competitive. So I recognize from a young age, like, well, I have to be at school and I gained self-esteem from not from doing my best quote unquote, but from doing better than other people. And that's just, I've recognized that as a truth. I like beating people in things and I like, um, being, being not not better than other people because I never viewed it at that, but I I liked feeling like I grasped things better than other people because it gave me self esteem and so that curiosity plus that attitude just went hand in hand for for school. My parents never ever had a conversation with me about um, education ever. Um, my grandmother, uh, my dad's dad, I'm uh, sorry, my dad's mom was a, a teacher. She grew up in Jersey and moved out here um, and raised me for the most part because my parents both worked till late at night. And so it was with my grandmother after school all the time. And, and with her, um, it was sort of, you come home, I, I have a, a diary or a journal from when I was seven years old, I started. She said, you need to write every day, you need to read every day, and you need to do your homework before you do anything else. And then my reward after I did my homework was I got to play her guitar. So I think... Yeah, that kind of just like unending curiosity. And when I didn't know something, it bothered me. 
or when someone else knew something that I didn't know, it really bothered me. <laughs> and it got under my skin so that I would often take time on my own to go like figure it out or sort it out. Um, that's still the case today. But yeah, I was always... And, and the funny other the other side of this, I mean, we can get into this a little bit, but uh, I actually don't really even wholly believe in school or, or higher education. I don't think that it is some sacred place or institution or that it is administered in the way that it should be in our country. I think that it is um, certainly one way to get through life, but I don't think it's the only way. And I've met zillions of people who dropped out of high school who are smarter than I am. So, um yeah, I, it, for me, it's a structure that really has, has benefited my um, temperament, I think. Uh, but yeah, I always did, had straight A's until I went away to college, and then I got my first B on my report card coming back from college, and my my mom's comment was, what is this? And I was like, <laughs> it's like dude, this is my first semester at Princeton, fuck you. Like, right, leave me alone. It's just, I, how it's just I, hard. Yeah, how about, I, how about I'm here? This is already yeah. pretty impressive. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's school's always been something I've I've, uh, I've been good at, and there's not maybe not a lot that I'm great at. So when I'm good at something, I I'll, I'll like to do it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, there are like you said, there's uh, you know people that thrive in that structure, and then there are people who you you know like you know won't do well in that structure, but then you pray to God that they find the structure that will work for them. You know, yeah, yeah exactly. Those, yeah. There's this time. I mean, you, you know, just as much as I do, the friends that are in the touring cycle and, you know, as they get older and you're just like, dude, it's not even so much like, Oh man, you better have a plan B, but I'm just like, man, I hope you care about something else. Like, I, yeah. I, I hope, I hope you find that thing. Or, or even those, ban- those, it's, it's a, it's, it's hard not to be, in some ways jealous of the bands that like have actually made it big and like do it, do it. But then, you know, like even my closest friends who have been in the quote big bands, like they're not big bands anymore. You're, there's not a green day situation. There's not a Nirvana situation. You're, it's going to come to an end and you're going to have to figure out what you want to, what else you want to do with life. And I think that, uh, I've been lucky to have met up with musicians and people, um, that share that with me that like the music is the escape. The music is not the, the job, you know, and I'm lucky. I, I really do feel lucky that that's something that I, I kind of, um, figured out younger because I know that I'm not good enough at music. That's not true. I, I don't know how to make the sort of music that would make a living for me so right. that that would be all that I would have to do. Right. So, you know, but then I mean, on that same tip, you also I mean, just by the sheer fact that you were able to, you know, put together a festival and, you know, you've toured with your bands and done all that. Um, the the business acumen that you were able to kind of, uh, you know, gather in doing those things, was that something that came naturally and you enjoyed or was that something that you just had to do because this thing had to happen? I think for me, it was really um, I mean, you're talking about growing up too. I was 13 and I knew sort of the records that I was supposed to get. Uh, so, uh, I knew the records that I was supposed to uh, listen. DK, um, Descendants, Black Flag, Minor Threat. And I remember I was eating dinner with my dad and stepmom. And there was a record store across the way that it was called uh, Offbeat Records. And we had to wait to get in. I was like, oh, can I go take my allowance and, or my 
uh, chore money and go over and buy the CDs. I be back ten minutes, and I went and bought Minor Threat. Uh, I was thirteen, and I remember I came back to his house and I had to listen to music really quietly. And so I turned it on. And I was just reading the lyrics, and I just it, it just immediately. I mean, it's so cliche, but I was like, "This is the band. This is this is what I want to do. This is amazing." And um, I think from really valuing discord and looking into how they did it and the fact that these 17 year old kids put out their own record and all of that it just was like well i don't need to ask anybody's permission to do anything so i think it's always been the case of because people even today will be like you know family members or whatever like oh you've toured how do you do that and i and i don't really know you know i just feel like there's an objective there's a goal i want to tour europe and uh, I need to figure out how to make that happen, and I and I make that happen, and, and uh, I want the festival to happen. You know, uh, okay, I need a. You just the thing that I think is is tough for people is when you look at a problem as a whole, it is daunting and impossible. And I think what I've benefited from is having not necessarily good business acumen, but being able to break down large problems into small ones that I know how to solve. I know how to call a telephone number to ask how much it costs to rent a venue. Once I have that number, I know like, okay, I need to figure out how to make that much money happen, you know? And so, um, I think more than like, I I like the term business acumen. I wish I could claim it more. I think more (laughs) what it is is just, I'm stubborn. Right. So there was never a time if I really had a goal, there's never been a goal that I've had that I haven't, achieved or am not still trying to achieve and trying to figure it out sure yes well that does make sense because there is there there is a distinct uh division between the idea of just accomplishing things from a you know goal-oriented perspective of you know whatever equating it to bands like oh i gotta put out a demo so how do i do that and then i gotta put out a seven inch like you know it's a step-by-step thing as opposed to you know that, like you alluded to earlier where it's like you look at a band like green day and you're like okay i want to be there and it's like yeah dude you yeah. Gonna, are you gonna break that down to like 1500 steps it's like that's a big, yeah <laughs> that's well it, it and it's also i mean it can be i think that you and i and people that are in you know their late 20s to mid 30s are actually in a really we're in a demographic that is like this weird hollow point because we were we didn't have the internet as kids right but we had it as late teenagers and then early 20s. But we still were, I mean, me personally, I was operating off of DIY model that I would, that I kind of ingrained from SST and Discord in all aspects of life, not even with just music, but with like, you know, how to do life. It was like, well, if I want to do something, I figure out how to do it. And if you look at kids now, I mean, I teach freshmen and uh, in college. And, and when you and look at it, it's like, well, they were, they've grown up with GoFundMe. They've grown up with Facebook, this like amazing connection of people. We were talking the other day about how, like, the first tours that we did, you know, you'd have to print out all of the MapQuest stuff. Right. Which, if you didn't do that before you left, you were lost. And even before that, you know, you look at, like, okay, I've heard all the stories of, like, you know, Minor Threat coming out on a Greyhound bus to do tours in LA. It's like, that was even more difficult. So it's, it's in this way where the internet has really changed what DIY actually means and when I look at it I'm not really well equipped to go the route that people do which is like okay Bandcamp I don't even need to put out a demo and Warner Brothers might sign me or something like that you know like 
uh, or whatever, like SST or, uh, you know, sub pop, if they hear the right song or whatever, I don't even know how like R and B or rappers get heard, you know? And like, I'm not well equipped to do that. I'm still programmed to be like, no, I got to do a demo or, you know, for writing a new record, we have to like write it all. It has to be recorded. We need a physical product. And, and that isn't really the way things go anymore. So I live in this weird limbo where I think like, I know how to do things, but I know how to do things in a very 2003 kind of way. And that's where I feel comfortable when I start trying to do things. I mean, I know how to do social media. I know how to, how to be that kind of guy, I guess, but it's not, my comfort zone with that is, is really slim. So, well, you pick, it gets tough. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a very good point. I, I've, I've had those discussions as well where you, the, the, the notion that we have analog experience versus the digital world, like, you know, we're the last generation that experiences both of these things. You know, we have just as much comfort playing a video game as much as, you know, uh, doing something with our hands. I mean, to, yeah. uh, to a relative extent, I'm not going to pretend that, like, I know how to fix anything because I'm terrible at that. But <laughs> the, the point being that, uh, you know, there there is an analog world that I'm comfortable with. But then, yeah, the, the notion that, you know, uh, anybody from that is younger than us from a generation uh, is going to live only in the digital world. And, yeah, I, I think the, the, the interesting thread I wanted to pull on there was the idea that the principles that you've learned through, you know, the DIY scene and that, that sort of independent mentality, that, will, that, that can't not influence, like, you know, your teaching. Like, that probably permeates it in so many different ways. Yeah, all the time. Right. Uh, <laughs> and, and to the point where sometimes I think like, man, I, I need to, <laughs> I need to listen a little bit more to what my students might be saying than like, like really profess this way of doing it. But like it, real simple stuff, like even nuts and bolts, like, uh, I still have my students turn things in, in hard copy and they're like very confused sometimes they're not allowed to have computers or phones in my classes. And they're like, well, how are we going to take notes? And I'm like, well, you're going to use a piece of paper and uh, <laughs> stuff like that. But it extended even more to the point where I think what I've noted more than anything, because I also do photography and I still use an analog camera because that's how I learned. I learned on this camera. It makes sense to me. And I still have to go through the steps of, like I'm putting out a book of photography in the fall and I have to do that through scanning the pictures in because that's the way that things are done now. And I recognize that there's this, where I'm in a mode where, like you said, the analog kind of approach and the hands-on kind of approach is still, it's still alive, right? Vinyl records are again a thing, quote unquote. But what I recognize is that more so than the actual physical artifacts of the process. It's a um, metaphysical kind of differentiation, which is the younger generations are very comfortable that answers are out there and they don't need to pose possess them that they can, as long as they know how to access the information or answers that there might arise, they have a comfort level. I walk the earth and I feel very much like I need to have in my brain the, the, the required information that I need before I leave the door or else I feel ill-prepared. Uh, when I'm traveling, when we're doing a tour, like, yeah, uh, we still, you know, we'll use our phones to like get around on Germany stuff. But like, if you ask anyone in our band, like we all kind of like, I don't really need GPS very much because we like know where we're going. We've been there enough and we've done it where like, I'm comfortable with how to get around. Um, and that's something that I, that I, 
sometimes I think is a benefit for the younger generations because they're freer to sort of um, traverse the world without being hung up on like all these little facts that may or may not, the details that may or may not matter. But I do think what's lost is really, and this is what I impress upon my classes all the time, I teach rhetoric and, and writing um, as an um, assistant lecturer right now, but still finishing my PhD. So a lot of what I try to impress upon them is care for detail, like word choice matters, syntax matters, form matters, not just the general idea. And, and I don't know if it's just my take. I've talked to Justin about his classes that he teaches, and he feels similarly, where like details have just lost their import. And when you look at the national conversation going on or the international conversations going on, people just abstract to like these general facts or these general notions that just get rid of all nuance and that to me is a really big danger so i don't know if you can you can connect those two but that to me is an analog versus digital world Mm -hmm. it's really important like i i equate detail with analog um and i equate sort of speed and movement and momentum with the digital sort of world and and photography is maybe a great place to look at it because it i have 12 shots on one roll of film and i I can take a 12, each one that I print costs about eight to $9 just to go from taking the film and digitalizing it. So when I click, it means that's $10 of my life versus someone who has a, a digital camera. They can go about and take 15 pictures all in the one same spot and then go home later and pick the best one. And I don't know. That's not me. Right. I, w- I want to do, do it right the first time, I guess. Right, right, right. No, I see what you're saying. You know what my favorite part of advertising on my podcast is? Is the fact that I get to try amazing products and tell you about it because this is stuff that I actually believe in. And this is 100% a company that I feel is doing some amazing things. So Away. Away, they offer high-quality luggage that is designed to be resilient, resourceful, and essential to anybody that travels. And, you know, you're thinking to yourself, like, luggage, like, really? How cool can it be? This stuff is a total game changer. They sent one to me. The way that it's designed helps get my stuff organized. I've used it uh, on a weekend away with the family, and we were all able to fit our stuff in there. And it's so rad because they have a little USB charger that's on the outside of the suitcase. So that way, you know, you're in the airport and you're you're waiting for your flight. And there's always that panic of like, oh, my gosh, like I, I my, my phone's about to die. And it's like, boom, there you go. Problem solved. So it's unbelievable because it's TSA approved and it has a combination lock for 360 degree spinner wheels. It's just, I could go on and on for like 10 minutes about this, but this is the real deal. So what I want you to do, you can get $20 off a suitcase, go to awaytravel.com slash words and use the promo code words during checkout. So please awaytravel.com slash words, promo code words. And then I will be giving you, well, technically not me away is very nice and they're giving you $20 off. Trust me. If you travel once or twice a year, this thing will pay for itself in its convenience. And what they do on top of all that, you can try it for a hundred days, you know, vibe with it, see what it's like. And then and if at any point you decide that it's not for you, you get a full refund and shipping is free within the lower 48 states. So you've got nothing to lose. Please awaytravel.com slash words, promo code words, $20 right back in your pocket in regards to the discount that you get. So please, Away is the real deal. I love it. You'll love it. And now, on with the show. 
you know, you're you're an opinionated person. You know, a lot of people <laughs> in your in your younger years, you know, w- would look at you and be like, oh yeah, fuck Al because he has this opinion on you know A, B, and C that I don't agree with, and so you know he's hard headed or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're not afraid to push buttons from what I've noticed as well. Um, True. Was the, again, was that kind of something that was always sort of inherently part of you or was that something that was kind of a function as you started to, you know, exist more and have stronger opinions in, you know, the world that you're like, yeah, I push up against this for, you know, all of these reasons. Um, how did that kind of manifest? Itself? I think I've always been a contrarian which is not, uh, uh, that, that, that word is used sort of like the word rebel. I think a lot of time it has some weird sort of dark respect, but, uh, I've always been someone who's, who's waffles or wavers between skepticism and, uh, healthy skepticism and pure contrarianism. Now, as I've gotten older, I think what I've done is try to move away from contrarianism to really take arguments on their merit and to, analyze them but i really hold fast to skepticism and i think that people in general aren't as skeptical as they should be and i think maybe one of the differences at least from like where we have met and where we've come from is that um it kind of goes back to that california thing we're talking about in the beginning but i have never felt like you know when they talk about like like crews or whatever um or like groups of of people that are brought together by a form of art i i guess that's never really made sense to me since I was younger. Like my friends were my friends cause we grew up and had the same elementary school teachers and like made fun of the same people and got made fun of by the same people. That's kind of how we, how I felt like a connection to them. Not because we, we also then happened to both and all enjoy sort of the same sort of music, but like because you and I enjoyed the same band did not mean to me at any time that like we believed in the same things or that we um, were uh, necessarily held the same opinions. What it meant to me, and this is still true, why I do feel at home at shows and at home in venues, is that I'm surrounded by people who I assume to be skeptical because you're not just accepting like K-Rock or whatever, Kiss FM or whatever music is just handed to you. You have to do work to get into this stupid, loud, weird music, right? And so if you're willing to do that work to find this music or this scene that kind of makes a little bit more sense to you, my sense is that you're skeptical of all the other crap that's out there. So why wouldn't it hold that you'd be skeptical of all the other opinions that are out there, including of the same group that we're in? So I always got confused when people would say that to me or, or when people would be like, fuck that guy, da, 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 da. It's like, wait, because we listen to the same music does not at all mean that we uh, have to have the same blind trust or faith in one another. We should hold each other accountable. We should ask each other questions. That's how we got here in the very first place, was asking questions of all the other weirdos that we didn't agree with outside of this thing. So... I always thought that like whenever I would get that kind of criticism, uh, I understood it because sometimes I held opinions that weren't necessarily um, kosher, I suppose. But looking back on it, like all of the people that I genuinely respect aren't people whose opinions I necessarily agree on. I, I don't agree with everything Rollins says. I don't agree with anything Ian MacKay says. I don't agree with everything that uh, Thomas Bernhard, this writer, says or Donald Bartholomew says, another writer I love. I agree with their approach to things. And to me, the outcome 
of the opinion has a lot more to do with your own personal experiences. And why the fuck should my opinion be the same as yours? We've had different experiences. But I will respect opinions as long as they are brought through a, a healthy skepticism and asking questions, even of their own self, right? And so, I don't know, man. Like, to me, that's what punk has always been about from day one. Like, I, mean, I think why I was attracted to it, you know? Like, uh, I, I got into it. I got into a lot of music through Nirvana, but, like, it was, to me, it was this this fact of like, well, I don't need to accept just what everyone else is accepting. And I, and I don't like the tribalism of hardcore or punk. It just doesn't make sense to me. And I don't feel like, I don't know, you, you know, we're, we're brothers because we went to the same show or whatever, or that like, I need a crew to like back me up. I'm totally cool being by myself. And I've always felt that way. Uh, I don't give I, I don't, I don't, I still do not care if you agree with me. I care that you are, are, questioning things as much as i am that's how i feel at home with people yeah oh no i i I completely agree with you in the sense of like you you know if you are actually going through and doing something whatever it may be whether it's you know like you mentioned crew or whether whether it's something else completely different you should be comfortable with it you should actually question why you're doing that thing because i think a lot of people that don't you know just end up going with the flow and being trapped in whatever it is that they are doing and then they become a victim of of their surroundings as opposed to actually thinking through like wait do it is this something i really feel comfortable with like, is this, is this really yeah bad? and and the most i mean i think the most I, I guess that's where for me the definition of punk always went down to skepticism and either formal skepticism of like what music sounds like or could sound like or con- contextual uh skepticism or like content like what what we're talking about, what we're writing about, what we're talking, what we're singing about. Like, and I liked that people were saying things that were left of center or right of center or things that I didn't agree with. Right. So, um, yeah, like I, I really wholeheartedly, and I, st- I, in all of my life, I kind of apply that so much that it exhausts a lot of people. And what is different than me now as a 34-year-old man than when I was maybe 21 or 22 when you first knew or saw when we met each other was is more that I think maybe I, I saw there to be some um, capital in offending people as long as my I really did believe that. But broadcasting that opinion loud and proud in a way that almost brashly, right? There's some sort of capital that's gained from that and intention you can garner from that. I don't think I was ever doing an attention grab, but as long as I believed in something, I was going to be as loud about it as I could. Sure. I, th- I think as a 34-year-old person, I, th- um, I recognize in a lot of the students that I teach and a lot of, you know, I have a niece that's 12 and, a, and a, another niece that's 8. I look at them and I realize it, it, we change so very much that an opinion that even I held or that, that someone I'm arguing with holds dearly is so malleable given circumstance, you know, that you might, I might be someone who sits here and says like, you know, I don't think the police should exist. And then my life is saved by a cop. And then all of a sudden I recognize like, well, there's some inherent value in that for me personally. So I try to, to, I try to channel my opinions through, um, more, not, it's not more filter, but more skepticism. I think, you know, I try to really, think hard about who I am and when, where I need to end up in terms of being content with my own opinions. And, and I, I allow them to change more than I did when I was younger. 
Right. Sure. No, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, as you get more of a perspective, it's easier to understand, like we were talking about earlier in regards to language and syntax is like, there's, there's nuance, like there's, there's weight to words, but you definitely need to be able to, um, parse through those things to understand when to use them and when to not use them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so <laughs> was the Miracle Mile your first band? Like, was that your first band experience? No, my first band experience was when I was 12 years old. We were called Independent Jays, J-A-Z-E, and we played uh, Aneurysm by Nirvana and I think an Offspring cover. Nice, uh, nice. And then from that, um, that was middle school, and then my other middle school band ended up being called All Out, or no, Defiance, and then it changed to All Out, I think, and that was me and... This guy Spike and this other guy Evan, and we played the an eighth grade talent show, which was sick, and we covered uh, "Pervert Nurse" by Di. <laughs> wow, and, that's that's pretty mature for a middle school. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I was playing my Ibanez Talman, and then uh, we broke up, and then in high school, so I had like these close friends from elementary school, but we never played in a band together. Um, what happened for me, well, this will give you the perspective. So what happened for me was I listened to Belle Bib DeVoe, um, Another Bad Creation, Janet Jackson, uh, Paulo Abdul, and it was like every day, crisscross. I loved it, and I was 10 and 11, and then I was going to get a skateboard with, um, or I was going with my best friend at the time to go get a skateboard, and his sister was 16 and driving us, and she was playing Nir- uh, Nirvana in the car. And I asked, I was like, what is this? And she said, yeah, you're too young, you won't like it. I was like, no, what is this? She said, Nirvana. And that night, I asked my mom if we could go to the warehouse to buy, uh, and I was like, I need to buy a CD. And then the next day, I asked my mom if I could switch from playing saxophone to playing guitar. And she was like all up in arms. She wanted me to play saxophone and be a jazz musician, blah, blah, blah. And uh, as soon as I got a distortion pedal, uh, that was it. So since then, I've always been in bands. Um, high school, I joined all my best friends. We were in a band called Miyagi, um, which we played many shows in Torrance and a um, few in El Segundo, where I live now. And uh we were all going to see like death by the hell shows where we would have seen you like death by stereo an when they came through the pch or like mm-hmm. all the shows at uh public storage and then chain and um straight face i remember we loved straight face strife all the bands insurgents uh oh dude Insur- <laughs> i haven't heard that name in a while god i love so, insurgents. so good they're so good so insurgents good. and um uh, God, all the new age bands. Um, the C band that I just forgot came into my head. Collateral uh, damage. Collateral damage. Yep. <laughs> and then, um, uh, anyway, so we were going to all these shows, and like for us, it was like, well, we we could never be on that level. Blah 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 blah. So you know, we played through high school and put out two CDs to all of our friends, and but we knew how to, we recorded, and it was awesome. But I always, in my back of my head, was like, well. I do want to tour all across the country. So Miracle Mile was when I got to college and I was like, all right, so I'm not doing that band anymore, but I want to do a band. Like I want to try to see if I can like, and I think living on the East coast and I started going like, well, I don't know. These kids aren't that much older than me. They're doing these bands. I could do this. And so started Miracle Mile with uh, my, my best friend that I met in college uh, in Italian class. He was wearing a black fly shirt. He was the only kid at Princeton that like I, felt like I could connect with. Uh, so he and I just started writing songs 
uh, <laughs> in our dorm. And then I came home from that and had some young kids from my high school that were still in high school and asked if they wanted to be in a van and we just started doing it. That's awesome. Yeah. I just always, I always like to hear the, uh, their trajectory cause you know, I always feel weird when, you know, I have a person on a show and like, well, I guess this is emblematic of a very random experience, but it's like, you know, like Davey Havoc has only played an AFI <laughs> I, I yeah. it, and it's so weird. I'm just like, wait, like nothing else. It's like, no, I'm just, I've just played an AFI for 20 plus years. It's like, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's to me. so mind blowing. It's crazy. I mean, mo- more power to them. It's like, and granted you understand a band like that because they've gone through so many sonic changes that essentially, you know, the first AFI was their first band, but they just kept the same name. You know? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. And, and he's actually been in five different bands. They've just all been called AFI. So is in the end, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I think, I mean, it's not so for me, one of the things that was a big kind of shift was going, you know, I, I playing guitar from the time I was 11 till 22 in a band. So 10 years of like, just always like having a guitar with me. And then I wrote all the lyrics for Miracle Mile, but I never got to sing them, which is why I wanted to do dangers because I was like, well, I'm fucking an over not getting to say my own words. So I want to do that. And that's kind of how danger started because I was, I was just fed up with that. And it was, I don't know. Uh, and out and out, it came out of that sort of frustration to a certain extent. And then the funny or weird thing is like most, not most people, but a lot of people now, if someone knows me from music, they usually know me from dangers and they have no idea that I play guitar. They have no idea that I record guitar on all our recording that I write all the music, you know? Um, all right. With, I, I write a lot of the songs and give them to the band and we like all go through them. And, right. uh, you're not just the loser singer. Yeah, it's funny. I, I don't mind it, but it's it's interesting when they like find out that I play guitar. Like, what? What? And I'm like, yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> and did you uh, <laughs> on that same idea? Did you uh, immediately take like once you started to you know get in front of the mic and and be a singer? Did that come naturally, or was that something that you had to kind of learn to work up to? Um, maybe too naturally. I remember there was this moment when like. I remember going to see Bane at the Chain Reaction right after It All Comes Down to This came out. And I was on the right-hand side where Zach was. And I remember his guitar. He had a a Portis head sticker on his guitar. It was weird. And I remember there's watching them. There's this moment where towards the end, there's a VHS of this somewhere that I need to find. But... um, I don't remember what song even they're playing. Maybe both guns blazing, but they they play the song and it was like an outro kind of moment. And there's this tension because Zach was going like crazy, like he does. But then Aaron Bedard was like trying to say some poetry in the middle of it. Like, I think it was a Bukowski poem or something, but it was like, you know, all lovers come this way, all true lovers pass through this or something. And I was like, remember being like, wait, do I like guitar now in this moment or am I watching the singer or what, what is it? And then I kind of felt like when danger started, it was just sort of, I thought I, I'll do what Zach does. Cool. I'll be here. Uh, I was like, I'll do what Zach does, but I'm going to do it on a microphone. Uh, and I kind of like just decided to how I sing, how I play guitar. So, uh, it was a pretty natural progression for me. I never felt like uncomfortable at all. It just felt like 
now I get to jump into people <laughs> instead of like being afraid that my guitar is going to break. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. You're like, I, I don't have to worry about, yeah, breaking an $800 guitar. It's like, I just have a, you know, $40 mic. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Well, and I think the, the, the one thing, I mean, Justin and I still talk about this sometimes. The one thing that is difficult for me is that I never, because it's hard for people. I always think about the person who doesn't listen to our band at our show, who's never heard our band. And, how hard it is to understand the words so it's the in-between stuff that always gets me in trouble and or is like the free form try to figure it out uh sometimes i'm too wordy sometimes i talk too much sometimes i don't talk enough and that's the only thing that i'm not graceful at and um admittedly so it's it's one of those things where i've appreciated bands that talk but not everyone does and i don't know it's how you how, how can you like create a, a a show and an experience for somebody that it really moves them and, and, and hurts their heart. So I just try to be as honest as I can. And sometimes it comes off poorly. Sometimes it doesn't. So I don't know. It's funny. It's funny you say that maybe I'm just uh, projecting myself on this. Cause I was, you know, people uh, yeah. definitely always threw stones at taken in regards to like, dude, stop fucking talking in between songs. And like, you know, sometimes I would be goofy and silly and other times I, you know, would say something meaningful, but I, I, I do, I really identify with what you're saying in regards to, you know, bands that get up there, even if they're on tour, um, you know, and they're saying basically the same stuff over and over each night and you don't, you know, no one recognizes that because they don't right. see that on a night to night basis. But you do want to create those moments of spontaneity um, in order to give people, like you said, that real connectivity where it's like, oh, I feel like what they're saying, even though they may be saying a similar version the next night, it's still, right. it's still inherently unique for this particular moment. Well, yeah, and what can we we talk about this as a band a lot, which is that like to be tight, you got to have it rehearsed well, and we practice a fucking shit ton in order to have it like be a, a tight band. I mean, that's you guys are similar, and I think that being said, when I look at the music that like most really like, what are the moments in a performance that like grab me and hold on to me? Uh, I went to take my mom to see Fias last week and watching her, like it's those moments that you're not going to watch someone play live so that they can play exactly what the CD or or record does perfectly in front of you live. You go for the the things that are slip ups that are mistakes and, or that are embellishments or that are improvisations. And to see what on that night, the music requires of the person to do you know and what the the interaction i think for us especially because there's such a strong interaction between the crowd and the people it's it's really exciting to be able to have some of the improvisation be not necessarily even in the music it can be in like what just happened today i mean i mean i think one of the most intense shows that i've ever played was uh we played in connecticut maybe 2008 or 2000, no, it was 2009 or 2010. And it was the first time we had gone to the East Coast, so we had never been out there. And um, we were playing it uh, for people um, who were really close friends with Mitch Doobie, who had moved from Southern California over there. And Mitch really liked our band and introduced our band to a lot of people out there. And I didn't know Mitch that well, but I knew that he was close friends with everyone that were there, and he, he had been shot and killed in this uh, armed robbery. And we were playing at noon before we had to fly home that same day. And it was a packed, like, and it was probably 200 people in this little back room of this house. And I don't remember what, I mean, it's, there's a video somewhere online. I'm sure of this, but like, I just remember feeling like, how do we start the set? What do we say? And I wanted to say something about Mitch. And then I just felt like everyone in that room was all on the same page 
the same time thinking like we're no but like i try to guess to get the idea that like those the person that killed mitch we are no better as a species than that person as great as mitch is we are also our worst person and like that was it and i just remember feeling like this is an important thing to have done and uh that doesn't come from just us having written songs that comes from that moment yeah. without without that without that the circumstances of that moment it doesn't get heightened to 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 what it was yeah absolutely that's no it's a really poignant moment um the last two things i want to hit on before i left you was the um you know, kind of, kind of going back to the fact that you know when there was such a controversy looming around you and the band and being outspoken and you know people wanting to you know roll up to shows and beat the hell out of you and all that stuff that um, you know frankly just just always made me um, uncomfortable is an understatement. I was just like I never, I partially because I, you know I never joined a crew myself or I never was a part of any of that. I just it, it yeah. didn't make any sense to me. Um, you know, I, as you uh, you know as obviously most of that is in the past i mean people still have an opinion on you one way or another but you know aren't acting out to the extent where they're you know talking about targeting shows and beating you up and all that sort of stuff um yeah. you know do you like how do you reflect on that is it just one of those things where it's like yo i'm, I'm glad that's in the past like that was so dumb when it existed um you know, <laughs> how does it all kind of exist in your head now i was i was honestly sh- uh, even looking back on it now i'm shocked that it was such a big deal to so many people right i, I remember because it, it was dangerous it was our first show we played at cinco cali because it was like well and we there's a lot of people in that room I, watching us because i guess we put on the I, you know i put it on but also because people like miracle Mile, i guess and they're interested in the new band and i mean from my recollection i didn't say anything controversial i said hey we're having a lot of people get hurt at shows all of us who are in this room know who's doing it so I feel like putting a name to it isn't a big deal. Saying that it's this group called FSU, that's not information that's new to anybody, but we should do something about it. And I still, to this day, remember when I said those letters, like, ooh, it was like <laughs> I had said something that was like off limits or something. And really, I guess the, the, the clarity on that, maybe, because people might listen to this, like it was that... I was living on the East Coast and going to shows there where there was a lot of that happening. But what also is true is that no part of my name is mine except for the fourth. All of the other stuff belongs to other people. Right, and right. <laughs> so I've identified very strongly with my suffix. And I think one of the things, um, maybe one of the more poignant things, and this might happen for your son. I'm not sure if it, if it happens for you. But um, my grandfather, uh, my dad's side, passed away when I was um, 22, the day before I was supposed to go to lunch with him. He died on September 11th, 2005. And when I went over, my whole dad's side of family grew up in New Jersey, but I was one of the first to get over to the his the funeral home and to go through stuff with my dad and what I recognized during that whole process was that uh, when my father named me I, I really I mean he hasn't talked to me about this but I recognize it's the only time I've seen my dad cry that my dad was really naming me more after my grandfather mm-hmm. in a way than just himself and my grandfather was a flawed flawed man but he was a, a black guy who grew up in jersey uh, east orange new jersey was where i raised his family he grew up in jersey city ended up being city council in jersey uh in the 70s i found some video footages of him like calling out all these rat landlord people who were slumlording their 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 citizens and just a lot about my grandfather that uh, I do respect. He was a black man who went to um, 
Cornell University. He never got to graduate because he joined the war. Um, but just trying to think about who my grandfather was has been a large part of my, my growing up in my own head. And um, I think that the fourth to me, like it's it's a way that I can connect into I'm very big on family and I'm very big on my, my progenitors and my, my grandfathers and my grandmothers and all the lessons I've tried to open my ears to what they have tried to tell me. And, um, so I think now as a 34 year old man who doesn't have kids of his own, um, I don't know that I would name my kid the fifth if I ever had one just because they didn't actually get to know the third and he was fucking cool. So, uh, I, I think that there's like this weird pressure that exists. Maybe I'll leave you with this kind of idea is that like, I remember when we were burying him, one of the things that I recognized was like, well, when they put the headstone in, I'm going to get to see what it looks like if I have a headstone. Cause mm-hmm. it's going to say my name on it. And, uh, I went back to, they, they didn't have the headstone ready when they, when they, they were doing the grave and he's buried, um, in the same, uh, funeral or the same cemetery, um, as they filmed, uh, the Sopranos in and his was one of the last it's the Parnassus cemetery it's like a very historic cemetery I went there to find his headstone and to kind of look at it and um, this was after Sandy happened and a lot of the cemetery had been screwed up and there was like a lot of like headstones that had been gone like swallowed in by the earth and were missing and so I, it was just gone so I've yet to see my name on a headstone but I do think that I don't know it's kind of a I like that you named your son that. It's a it's a thing that I think will change and grow with him. It's even more it, with every generation, dude. You've got more to live up to and more to like. If you're a shitty dad, then you know he's gonna have less to live up to. But yeah, no, it, it, no dude, it totally. It's funny because I mean the whole the whole thing. I mean my my father the second he died before my son was born, so he's never gonna know my father his grandfather and it it, it, and honestly the whole reason that it kind of that my wife and i even you know went forward to having kids at that particular point was because of his death and i was like dude i never got to meet raymond edward harkins the first because he died before i was born and i'm like what the fuck was i waiting for but yeah i mean ultimately it was the the notion like exactly the thread you're pulling on of the the connectivity that you feel to the family and just this this story tradition that gets carried on where you're just like dude i am all these pieces even though i may not have met them i am all these pieces of these people that have come before me and it's just this wild thing yeah and i think maybe like in the context of like kind of how we met and and punk and everything like what i've recognized is that you know as different as i am than my dad and as different as i am than my grandfather uh, I never knew the first, so I don't really know what he was like, but they were both contrarians and they were both skeptics to a large extent, and they both bucked the system. I mean, my dad, as much as I disagree with a lot of the things that he says and does, he grew up as a black dude in the 60s in Jersey and figured out how to eat, how to navigate his way into big corporations, and like that's not my life. But that's punk too, you know. It's like trying to figure out how to like do shit on your own and to make it through. And and I think that spirit is something that like has sustained me, even when I oftentimes feel like a failure or feel like you know this music's been for nothing or this art or this teaching has been for nothing. I recognize that like you know my grandfather would have sat here and been like, "You're you're doing exactly what you should be doing." So yeah, 
No, that's real. That's super. It sits there. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing, dude. Well, Al, thank you so much. This was uh, this was really fun for me, and I really appreciate you being, uh, you know, so uh, so so intelligent and thoughtful in these in these responses. So thanks. Hey, thank you. I appreciate it, Ray. <laughs> All right, there was Al, and thank you very much, Al, for uh, hanging out on Skype with me one afternoon. And um, yeah, I just always these these discussions that get into certain corners of this independent music world are great especially from, you know, like running a fest. Like I, I feel that that is such a, and granted my perspective and perception is very colored because clearly I did a music festival for a couple of years, the beautiful sound and fury festival. So, but that, that's something that most people don't consider like the amount of work, the amount of stress, all that sort of stuff. And Al was, uh, you know, essentially first on the scene here in Southern California, as far as putting something together that was, um, you know, trying to, capture the vibe of Southern California and how excited bands are to come through Southern California and all of that. So yeah, anyways, thank you, Al. Thank you for doing what you do and thank you for being a good dude. And hopefully I'm going to beat the crap out of you this year at fantasy basketball. <laughs> Maybe that was just, was that necessary? I don't know. That wasn't very necessary, but you know, I, I still like y'all <laughs> anyways, uh, on the show next week after our beautiful July 4th holiday, we have Charlie Kaplan and you may not have heard of his name, and that's completely fine because he's a behind-the-scenes dude at Symbol.fm. So you've probably heard me talk about Symbol.fm if you are a regular listener of the show. And if you're not using that service, you are completely missing out. It's a great way to discover new music. But uh, I had a great discussion with him. I keep using the word great, right? Maybe drop. I had an awesome. How about that? <laughs> I had an awesome discussion with Charlie, and we talk about you know, like startups and Web 2.0. And we get into a lot of stuff that, uh, frankly, I don't get to discuss in uh, any other interviews that I've done because, you know, this is a, uh, even though it is a music discovery service, they are a piece of technology and app. And uh, I find that so incredibly engaging and entertaining. So that's what we got next week. So for all you tech heads out there, which I, I, I think are a lot of you because you're listening to a podcast, so you have to be somewhat technologically savvy. Uh, you'll love this episode. So that's what we got next week. And, um, yeah, have a good fourth and all that other fun stuff. And hopefully, uh, yeah, you get to blow up some things and, uh, enjoy the patriotism that is the July 4th holiday. So until next week, please be safe, everybody. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.